Hey guys, and welcome to a new episode of the Macro Trading Floor. Every week, me and my co-host Alfonso Picacello invite a top-class macro risk taker or strategist to unfold a macro thesis. But by the end of the podcast, we want an investment idea on the table because this ought to be the most actionable macro podcast out there. I'm Andreas Steno. And I'm going to say this with my Italian accent. I'm Alfonso Peccatiello. Did I say Piccacello? It yeah, sounded well, American, right? <laughs> yeah, like, like, like an American guy, Piccacello. Anyway, um, it's June 16th, Andreas, and we are recording the day after Jay Powell went to the wires and he fooled them all again. We got a big relief rally, and today we're like 5% down <laughs> since the top reached soon after the end of his press conference. So I have to ask you, what do you make of the Federal Reserve meeting of yesterday? Well, it, it wasn't really a biggie that they hiked uh, 75 basis points because of the pre-hint, basically, via the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so I think initially people started debating whether it was kind of a softening um, when it comes to the stance for the next couple of meetings that he want, uh, wouldn't want to commit to another hike of 75 basis points or or anything like that. Um, but I mean, by the end of the day, uh, and I also texted that to a few people yesterday, um, it is a strong signal to go with 75 basis points and it is a very strong signal to walk on stage and directly address the American people telling them that he will bring inflation down. I think that's what you need to to listen to instead of all the details on 50 or 75 basis points this is a very strong commitment and i think they they basically want to try the, to bring themselves ahead of the inflation curve now compared to uh, being um, behind it as they've been for maybe three quarters in a row now so this is a curve flattener event by the end of the day if you ask me oh you already come on with trade ideas mate <laughs> too early for that come on let, let's let's blubber some yeah. macro more shall we so my turn to blubber for a couple of minutes uh by the way i've released an article on the macro compass it goes through the fed meeting in length if you want to read whatever i think um it's free you can check it out but to make a summary i think he played bad cop good cop with the intention to play bad cop first you know that's that, that's his intention he wants to show commitment is going to bring inflation down doesn't matter, even if it causes some collateral damage to the economy. If you look at unemployment rate in the summary of economic projections, it's going up to 4%. That's Nairu. So today it's below Nairu. We're going to get to Nairu. We're going to get some unemployment rate up. We're going to get GDP growth to slow. But hey, it still projects hiking to 3.8% in 2023. And to keep rates at 3.4%, which is 100 basis points above their estimate of neutral for two years in a row, mate despite the collateral damage it's going to cause. So that's quite some commitment. I think I need to sip a bit from my gin and tonic after that message, <laughs> to be very honest. I'm stuck alone in a, in a hotel room. Um, so there's a Bible, there's a TV, and then there's a mini bar. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think the, the, the mini bar gets a long, long mini bar, short the rest in that trade. But look, I mean, the guy is very committed. He played bad cop and he said that growth is awesome, by the way, Andres. Did you know that? It's awesome. It's It's booming. Atlanta Fed GDP just came out with a Q2 GDP forecast at 0%. Retail sales are horrible, but it's great. It's flying. It's through the roof. So he has no problem denting economic growth. He will do that. He will raise rates above neutral. He will keep them above neutral. And all of that will achieve core inflation that goes down to 2.7%. That's all in the summer of economic projections. Wow, that's quite a take. I... I, I... 
I mean, I I also heard him saying quite a few times that um, some of the variables are now beyond the control of the Federal Reserve. He kept saying that. And to me, that's um, kind of a classic central bank rhetoric when you want to warn people that there is a risk of a downturn or even a recession, because you slowly but surely prepare people for a, uh, a worsening of the economic sentiment by saying that there are outside external factors that we cannot control that could derail this economy. Um, so to me, that was his way of acknowledging that things look pretty sour if you look ahead. Yeah, well, he tries to acknowledge that, but not acknowledge that. Again, it's bad cop, good cop. And the good cop went when he said, yeah, guys, but 75 basis points is not going to be every meeting. Eh? I mean, take it easy there. It's not the, the, the usual path. And uh, then he also said something a bit more subtle, but super important, I think. He said, once we get to neutral, that's going to be late summer. You know, it's two and a half ish percent. So maybe July, maybe September. Let's say July. We get there around neutral. From that moment onwards, they'd rather prefer a more conservative hiking stance above yeah. neutral. They're not going to do 75 basis point from 250 onwards. They're going to do maybe 25 basis point even above neutral. They're going to take it easy to go above neutral. They don't want to, you know, cause a, a big drama. But the bond market, Andreas, was pricing quite an aggressive path to reach the terminal rate at 4%. So when you tell the bond market, look, I'm going to be slower to get there, and the terminal rate might be lower than you think on top of it, then what happens is that you spur a bond market rally because you have to reprice these two-year yields, basically. And then what that does, of course, is it gives people tailwinds to go and lift credit spreads and equities because, you know, the Fed is, is being less aggressive than priced in. It's basically like a rate cut at the end of the day. It works in a similar <laughs> fashion. It's a rate cut against expectations at the end of the day, mm. right? So the bond market rallies, everything rallies, and then at some point, the bond market goes and prices terminal rate at 3.8%, exactly where the Fed told you it will be, with mm. zero risk premium on top of that. And then the fuel for the rally is gone, because how can you price a terminal rate below what the Federal Reserve is telling you while they're being so hawkish? You have no room anymore, I think, to get that relief rally out of you. And so you reprice back. Yeah. And let's remember for a second that gasoline prices are still up versus the latest CPI print that we've received. Mm. Nice. Uh, and I mean, if you, if, if you watch the press conference uh, with Jay Powell, he basically told us that the gasoline price is now everything that they target. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, it almost sounded like it, right? Uh, because he told us that, well, inflation expectations are important for our reaction function. And he linked inflation expectations, for example, in the consumer survey, directly to gasoline prices because, and I think that's a fair assessment, that's essentially what people watch. Uh, so you need to drive to the local gas station to figure out whether the Fed will hike 75 or 50 basis points <laughs> next time, because that also, that's all that matters now. Uh, it's, uh, well, the main message, I think I agree with you, he, he is still the bad cop right here, although he tried a couple of times to you know, make the message softer. I think he even injects more volatility in the bond market where he does that. And the more volatility you put in the bond market, Andreas, the, the, the less likely it is that other asset classes will be able to rally because people who have to run uh, risk, basically, if they can't deploy it in the bond market, they can't deploy it even further away in the risk curve. Uh, the other uh, event of the week was our friends at the European Central Bank. 
I just wanted to say maybe we should call it the fun take of the week because I mean <laughs> the soap opera in Frankfurt actually continues. Uh, Please enlighten us. What, how, what happened? Well, I was it a few days back. They um, they called for an emergency meeting, um, mm. and Financial Times broke that story. Uh, I was in a meeting um, with a few colleagues discussing asset allocation, and we basically ran for the screens. Um, and by the end of the day, they, they could have just send us an email, I think, with the news that they had for this press conference. I, I, I mean, of course, they, they now hint at looking into a uh, backstopping facility for Southern European uh, bonds. But uh, it's not like they are like close to pulling the trigger. Um, it seems as if to me that they can accept this to uh, to worsen a bit more before actually pulling the trigger. Uh, and then the second thing was that they hinted at using the um, already existing pandemic purchase program uh, to tilt um, the reinvestments towards Italian bonds by the end of the day. Uh, but I don't think that's a super weapon yet because, I mean... Uh, depending a bit on the uh, maturity profile uh, month after month, it will allow them some flexibility to buy more Italian debt. Um, but by the end of the day, I think they want a like a true backstopping mechanism to, to be really certain that they can backstop what's going on in Southern European debt. What do you make yeah. of it? I mean, do you still prefer to be short Italian bonds? Oh, I as publicly even replied to one of your tweets because you called me out. Huh? You're, you're not an easy guy. You're like, hey, dude, you should stop out on BTPs. <laughs> like, okay, well, I'm going to take my profits. I did actually. I closed the trade, BTP boons at 225 basis points. But just because, to be honest, it bleeds carry like a dog as a mm. position to own. And now the central bank has told me, Alf, you had fun, right? You shot it at 150. Now it's now 225. Great. But now there is a line in the sand. We're going to draw one. It's not very clear like how deep it is the line in the sand that you can't cross, but we're going to draw you one in the meantime just to discourage you from being short here. And so who am I? They have an infinite balance sheet and I don't. So then <laughs> then it's it's pretty safe from my side to say, okay, enough. I had some fun here. I can take the trade off. I read today even, um, I think it was Reuters or the Financial Times, they put out an article um, speculating on the possibility that they could actually uh, sterilize the BTP purchases, not by making the balance sheet grow, which means they'd have to sell some bonds outright. Because if you want to wait for the maturities, as you said, it mm. becomes pretty mechanical, right? You have to wait for a bond that mature, and then you can reinvest part of that in BTPs. If you don't want to be dependent on that, the only flexibility you can get is by outright selling some bonds. Then you can sell some, and with the proceeds, you can buy Italian bonds. So the balance sheet doesn't grow, and you're basically doing a BTP boom trade from the ECB perspective. The bonds you will be selling if you do so are the, 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 the most resistant to um, fragmentation shocks. It's core bonds, it's Dutch bonds, it's German bonds, and you will be buying Italian bonds with it. So they, they want to take the opposite side of my trade. And then, you know, even if it's only a speculation, I think it's enough for me to say the game masters with an infinite balance sheet and firepower are telling me to go away and then I went away. But, uh, if you ask me, um, this is, if not a, a crime against European humanity, then at least a crime against the European constitution, uh, if there is such yeah. one. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sure that this will be legally challenged in Germany if they actually yeah. start doing this. So let's see. Um, but one final thing I want to mention from the central bank, La La Land, is the Bank of Japan, because yeah. we actually have 
quite a fierce speculation against the Bank of Japan. They're still defending the 10-year point on the yield curve with an arm and a leg. Uh, so they're really forcefully defending that peg at 25 basis points for the 10-year yield. Um, but I mean, by the end of the day, I think there's a risk that they will have to give up on this policy. What do you make of that risk over the next four weeks? So ooh, I'm going to say what the economists always say. It's 40%. The risk is 40%. If you say 40%, it's high enough that you can say, I told you, but if it's wrong, it's below 50%, right? So it's below my base case. No, but no. So uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm looking at, at being long the Japanese yen here as a potential trade. I haven't put it on the books yet. I'm investigating what's the best way to do that if I want to do that. If I look at uh, backdated uh, JGB futures or uh, Japanese WAPs, those basically can try and price what's coming beyond the simple mechanism of the JGB backstopping the, the, the yield curve at 25 basis point, the 10-year today, right? They can price what's coming uh, in the next few months. And there is quite a meaningful probability priced in that over the next three to six months, they'll have to give in. So uh, actually, there is a chance, I think. I'm looking Jap at Japanese inflation swaps to get an idea, Andreas, because Japan wants to import inflation. I mean, okay, they, they don't have anything against that. Um, if Japanese inflation swaps will start to tell them, you know, you're going above 2% most likely, and, you know, weaker yen is damaging your, your domestic economy to a certain extent, probably they will gradually give away the 25 basis point. I don't expect them to say there is no yield curve control anymore, <laughs> but already moving it to 50 basis point. The markets will extrapolate the next move is 75 basis point. And then it's 100 basis point, mm -hmm. right? The, the bond market especially works in expectation terms. So I like investigating the possibility, but I haven't looked at risk rewards and probability being priced in yet well enough to, to get a proper stance on it. I think it's tricky to just move the bar from 25 basis points to 75 basis points without really truly backing it up um and if i uh if i was a member of the bank of japan committee i would probably call someone from the swiss national bank to get a feeling of how it is to defend such a line in the sand because it's not easy we have to admit no. that um but with those words i think it's time to introduce the guest of this week an avid central bank watcher um a great economist, but also a great strategist when it comes to macro asset allocation. So I look very much forward to hearing her idea on how to position in this tricky environment. It is now time to introduce the guest of the week, and we are basically bussing to reveal who it is this week because we've been trying to book Francis Donnell for quite a while and we are super happy that we finally succeeded in doing so. Um, Francis, you're the um, Global Chief Strategist at Manulife Investment Management and very warm welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, for those of you uh, out there who don't know Francis, uh, I'll allow you to just briefly present yourself for, for the audience. Sure. So uh, global uh, chief economist, that is my background, more the economic side, but I, I don't like to reveal that too often. And strategist. Uh, and so I work on a range of portfolios for Manulife. Some are very tactical, uh, trading, you know, maybe every week. Some are very long term for retirees and pension plans that have to have five to 40 year type of outlooks. And so that means that I have to have both an idea of what's happening in the near term, but then also how does that play into long 
long-term investment themes. That's a real joy of the job, actually. It means you can sometimes take take a step back from, uh, you know, is the Fed going 50 or 75 and think about what the long-term implications are. I've worked for the Bank of Canada. I've worked on the sell side. Uh, now I'm on the buy side. So a range of background. Uh, I, I think that's, that's maybe all of it. Uh, what else is interesting, I guess? Well, Francis, th- that sounds already quite interesting to me. And I think the audience on the macro trading floor will love to hear your macro thesis and then your macro trade idea too. I guess my first question, because it's a topic du jour, is uh, the Federal Reserve meeting we just listened to yesterday, because I think that can help you unpack your macro thesis if we start from there. So what's your take of the Fed meeting you know, it, it took me a few hours. We were on the phone, the whole team, including the Asia team, until well into the night trying to figure out, did we get new information that changes the story at all? Was this really pivotal? And trying to be uh, very thoughtful about what happened, not just the Fed meeting, but why did we have a an, an introduced monetary policy shock on a Monday afternoon, 48 hours before a Fed hike via a news outlet that has a paywall attached to it during a blackout period. You know, there was a lot to unpack in what that story was, but there there were a few things I thought were very interesting that happened in that Wednesday meeting. And I, as much as I don't like to overemphasize any single Fed meeting, there were some very important clues. And the first one was this introduction of the easing cycle. Um, so the Fed has that beginning in 2024. And now that means that I can get less flack by talking about not just what the next hike will be, but when the first cut will be. So I was a little bit relieved to see that. Uh, we actually think the Fed might start cutting in uh, 2023. And that's not so alarmist. Um, I get some heat for saying that. But the uh, average space of time between the last hike and the first cut has traditionally been about eight months. So it wouldn't surprise me if your guests this time next Next year are talking about what the easing cycle looks like. And as I mentioned, you know, a lot of my work has to do with where are we five years from now? So if we have this aggressive hiking cycle in 2022, but then we're cutting by 23, 24 for long term investors, that has important implications that are very different from a slow, steady hiking path that holds Uh, pretty clear that a soft landing is not a priority. It's a hope. Hope is not a strategy. Uh, We saw that in the forecasts, pretty low growth for 2021 and 2022, or sorry, 2022 and 2023. I also have pretty low growth for 2023, 1% and below. And what concerns me is not so much the, the depth of uh, 2023 weakness, it's the length of what that weakness is. Uh, So as you probably get asked every day, is it a recession or not a recession? That's not the question that plagues me. What plagues me is what happens if we end up in in four to six quarters of 1% type growth with slightly higher inflation. That's a different trade than just two quarters of a technical recession, most of which is priced by now. Um, What's pretty clear to me is that this is a Fed that will now knowingly and and willingly hike into a potential recession or slow growth. And that calls to question uh, the concept of the Fed put. Where is it? Uh, I used to think at the beginning of the year that there was a Fed put revolving around growth and unemployment. I'm not sure I hold the same conviction in that view anymore. So that, again, changes the landscape. Surprised me that there was uh, actually seeds of evidence that there's a lot of lack of consensus in the Fed right now. So if you look at that 2024 dot, you've got one FOMC participant saying rates will be at 2%, another at 4%. 
that's a really wide dispersion. And then we had, can you believe it, Esther George dissenting. I was pretty surprised on that one. I'm not sure we got to the why of it, uh, but that was interesting. I think that's going to make our jobs, if you're uh, on the macro trading floor, more difficult because it means we're going to get a range of opinions over our um, Bloomberg screens or whatever your favorite trading yeah. platform is. The last thing that uh, very much surprised me in this meeting, but once again comes to this concept of what is the Fed's reaction function is that my goodness, Chair Powell is a glass half full kind of guy, isn't he? Um, <laughs> there are so many downside risks to acknowledge in this economy, both internally and externally. And yet I think his quote was something like, the economy is strong and capable of withstanding tighter monetary policy. Spending is very strong, he says, hours after we get a very weak retail sales report. When you look at the US economy and, and where we're going, Effectively, every leading indicator is pointing downwards. Housing, consumer, manufacturing activity, a massive fiscal cliff that people are not talking about sufficiently, business confidence, consumer confidence, obviously. These are all tanking um, and, and all suggest they'll decline for an extended period of time. There's no real inflection point. And of course, uh, this morning, we're recording on June 16th, um, more bad data. So housing looking pretty weak, more manufacturing surveys. So it struck me as uh, almost deliberate to not recognize those. And uh, I think we're all international. None, none of us are uh, in the U.S. Is that correct? Did I get that right? Correct. Yeah. So um, I may look like I'm in the U.S. I'm in Canada, in Montreal. But um you know, there's a lot of external things happening. Uh, ETB in some chaos. Europe, uh, in just about everyone's model, is going to be in recession this year. Heightened geopolitical risks. I don't know how to forecast COVID zero policies in China. If you have a model for that one, please share it. Very strong U.S. dollar. Um, you know, these are, are very sizable downside risks. So that was a, a long and rambling way to say, uh, I do feel like I have to change my outlook based on what I've seen this week, because this idea that bad news will be good news, this idea that the economy will slow significantly and the Fed will pivot, there's very little in the communication that we saw that suggests that will be true. So instead, uh, what becomes clear to me is that we need to put, or my prior forecast involved slow hiking over 2022 and 2023. Uh, I've got to revise that to, to very aggressive hiking in 2022, and then an easing cycle that begins in 2023. Um, and, and really, I, I just can't stop thinking about, does the Fed put still exist? And if it does, how do I need to reevaluate this concept, which for my entire career was a key element of macro strategy that maybe is you know, really disappearing in front of my eyes. But let's unpack the debate on that particular Fed put a little bit here, because uh, as you mentioned, uh, right about every forward-looking indicator for the U.S. economy is pointing south. But for one particular element, it's not inflation. So uh, what do you make of the Fed put in the context of inflation maybe rising even more over summer? So this was another thing that I, I had to change my thinking around, which is that, um, you know, I I spent a lot of time with Janet Yellen. Um, I learned a lot about central banking from Janet Yellen, who, as you both know, spent a lot of time talking about core inflation. We use core inflation. It's the best leading indicator of where we're going. We can't manage energy and food costs, which has now become a, a very popular line. You know, the Fed can hike all it wants. It's not going to solve a war in Europe or uh, change weather patterns or, um, you know, magically plant crops everywhere. 
But Chair Powell was pretty clear. It's headline inflation that he's watching. Uh, how peculiar the emphasis put on the University of Michigan long-term inflation expectations data point. Now, I, I actually been telling clients for a year to watch that data point, that it's relevant um, and actually more relevant than one-year inflation expectations, which the Fed very clearly can't control. Uh, but it's also a survey. It was one data point, And it shocks me how uh, aggressive the turn in communication was around a single data point, which would generally be viewed as secondary or tertiary. It does flow into inflation expectations. So one of the reasons why I feel like I, I have to do some deep thinking here is that I have fairly high conviction that core inflation has already peaked. It's been falling for two months. And like you, Andreas, I'm just looking at it from bottom up and top down reasons from uh, money supply components to used car prices, etc. Um, I've never been a big believer that the calculated shelter uh, OER, again, calculated. I really want to make a t-shirt that says CPI math is not real life. I think that would be very valuable. Uh, that these things would kind of flow down. Um, but energy and food price inflation, I don't have any conviction that that will soften. And we don't get base effects support until March of 2023. Yeah. So th if we take Chair Powell at his word, uh, there is not going to be much cover to pivot this year at all. What I find odd about the inflation story is that um, I, I, I did believe that, I still believe that COVID inflation is transitory, which doesn't feel good to say out loud uh, at all. But uh, the problem is that when we talk about inflation, I find a lot of the macro conversation conflates the fact that we've had two inflation shocks and they had some very distinct characteristics. The COVID inflation shock was the demand supply mismatch that we all know so well. And it persisted longer in large part because COVID persisted longer. So our preferences had to actually stay contained within that de demand supply mismatch for much longer than initially we were modeling. But the key characteristic of COVID inflation is that it largely came through in discretionary goods. So often I'm in, you know, I might be speaking at a conference with 300 people and say, how many of you bought a used car this month? And maybe like three people put up their hand. But then if you ask, did you buy a used car the month before and the month before and the month before, nobody puts up their hand. So this COVID inflation allowed us to exist in what I call the reflation regime, which was very strong growth, high inflation, some of the best returns out of any macro regime you could be in. When Russia invaded Ukraine and we saw the energy and food price shock, this is a very different inflation shock because it moved from discretionary to non-discretionary goods. And we all intuitively know that. But this was the turning point in the macro narrative. It wasn't that inflation was high and sticky. It was that we suddenly had a demand shock via the inflation channel that didn't exist in the first wave. So it's no surprise to me that it's when energy and food started to rise that a lot of our outlook started to disintegrate the consumer confidence really started to fall off a cliff more aggressively, and the market started trading stagflation. So we need to do a better job of distinguishing between what is COVID inflation and what is uh, conflict inflation, and why conflict inflation changes the macro narrative in a really extreme way and changes the way that this central bank is choosing to respond to it. And uh, Francis, I have to pick up here on the central bank reaction function, because if they will be looking at 
month-on-month inflation prints or the momentum of headline inflation, let's call it like that, um, they told us that looking at the summary of economic projections, even when you look at core inflation, conditional to them hiking to 3.8% terminal rate by 2023, they still project core inflation to fall only to 2.7% by that year and 2.3% in 2024. So two and a half years ahead of us, we'll still be having core inflation above 2%, despite them telling us they're going to hike 130 basis points above neutral rate. So then my question is to you, do you agree, by the way, neutral rate in the US is 2.5%? And then the second question is, do you think the Federal Reserve will really have to hike 130 basis points above neutral to achieve what they want to achieve? My estimate of the neutral rate is closer to 2%, um, but will depend on the evolution of productivity data, which so far looks like it's consistent with 2%, but productivity is notoriously difficult uh, both to measure and forecast. So maybe I'd put a 25 basis point range around that 2% target. What the Fed is going to have to uh, recognize or admit is that the structural inflation on a go-forward basis is very different than the structural disinflation we've experienced for the last 40 years and actually has less to do with COVID than it might seem. You know, pre-COVID, we used to forecast U.S. inflation out five to 10 years between one and a half to two percent. Now we forecast it between two and two and a half percent. So, you know, somewhat consistent with what the, the Fed is saying will happen. But the two reasons that we have that are actually these deglobalization or slobalization or second derivative change in globalization, whatever you want to call it, and also ESG transitions and some structurally higher commodity prices and some of the transition costs associated with that. And that's enough to give us this boost to the structural inflation story. But just like the Fed can't solve geopolitical developments, deglobalization and ESG transitions are also not particularly interest rate sensitive. So this central bank, among others, is going to have to make a decision of whether or not it allows that two to two and a half percent type of range and allows the rest of the economy to catch up. Now, It wasn't too long ago that the Fed changed its definition of full employment to broad-based and inclusive. We've got central banks joining massive global groups to talk about how they can support our economies through climate change. Those are not headline developments right now because we've been focused on a massive pandemic and a war uh, and, and really insane inflation to go with it. But my sense is that once we get to 2024 and 2025, what we're going to see is a central bank that has to pivot its mandate. And uh, central banks don't want to do this. I, I want to kind of, I'd love to tweet it. How much of 2% inflation in the last uh, you know two decades is because of the central bank? And how much of it is because of debt, demographics, and d- digitalization? Um, when we talk about Fed credibility, oh, we have to get inflation back to 2%. I think the real credibility story we should be having is how much credit are we giving to central banks for the 2% inflation we have now? We're going to have that conversation a lot in the next three years. When we look at the yield curve post this FOMC meeting, uh, I find it really interesting that we've seen I guess, a tendency towards flattening again by the end of the day. Um, And this is, of course, a consequence of the debate on the future growth outlook. Because ultimately, the yield curve is one of the better predictors, I'd say, of future growth. What do you make of the yield curve in the scenario that you just painted for the Federal Reserve? 
one of the challenges right now is that a lot of the good trades have run you know, two thirds, three quarters of the way. And the flattening yield curve was a story that you wanted to ring the bell on a year ago. But when I saw the market, the initial market reaction to the Fed yesterday, we saw some steepening. And when I talk about needing to change my own opinion of what the Fed put is, a lot of that comes back down to the idea that the bad news is good news narrative or the Fed will pivot. That would have been a steepener trade. But instead, what we're seeing is that news can get quite bad. In fact, every day it gets worse and we're not going to see a pivot. And that's a flattener trade. Um, Absolutely. So if you're asking me, you know, in the next three months, what are we going to see? For me, it's certainly curve inversion in twos, tens, five thirties. And uh, how you want to play that depends on um, who you are, what your product is. Five thirties has better carry, for example. Uh, But, you know, we, we looked at, um, just like everybody does every time the Fed's, uh, I've been around a few cycles now, so I've done the, oh, when the yield curve does this, this is what each asset class does a couple <laughs> times. So uh, when the yield curve started inverting, we pulled out those uh, par- uh, those uh, points from a couple years ago. But what became clear to me is there was a lot of narrative about how when the Fed hikes, it's a good thing because it means the economy is strengthening. Equities only do badly at the end of the Fed cycle historically. But that's assuming the Fed is hiking into strength. When the Fed hikes into weakness, which happened in the 1980s and the early 2000s, we didn't see the 10-year yield rise. We saw the 10-year yield follow PMIs lower. So as you say, Andreas, the 10-year is going to follow the growth story. And the growth story is going to go from being, oh, maybe it's a recession, maybe it's not a recession to what do we do in a protracted period of very low and sustained low growth? To me, that's a flattener. Yeah. So Francis, I used to trade bonds until a few months ago uh, in a large portfolio. And if I look at um, how people resist to this trade is they tell me, yeah, but two stands are like zero basis point in the US or eight or nine, wherever they are, very close to zero, right? So how can... Powell save face while the two stands in treasuries will invert if you're right, he will get the question a lot. He will get people telling him that this is a great predictor of recession. He's driving us into a recession. How can he save face next time he gets to a press conference and he gets this question asked? Well, he's already been asked this question a few times. Um, And the Fed has some classic responses. They've used them before. They've been wrong before. Uh, one of the things he's going to say is the three-month tenure is still uh, not close to inversion, and the Fed likes to use that one in its model. I suspect that one flattens quite a bit as well, <laughs> so maybe that story will dissipate. Uh, the Fed's also done a lot of work on speaking to how we're when we're in this lower potential growth environment, when we're closer to the zero lower bound, we're actually going to have flatter yield curves persistently, and they're going to invert more often, and therefore there's a strategic or structural dynamic that has changed. Um, and then he might do what he started to do yesterday, which is a uh, he'll put it more he'll put it more nicely, but he's effectively going to say, "I don't care if we have a recession." Um, and and those those seeds were planted yesterday. Um, they were planted with both the forecasts. They were planted with the cutting cycle being introduced. They were cutting with my favorite line of the whole presser was something to the effect of, "We don't seek to put people out of work, but but <laughs> yeah, that's what he said literally. But uh, 
Um, if and he had something to the effect of, um, you know, if the unemployment rate were to rise somewhat and we brought labor demand and supply back into equilibrium, that would be a policy success. So I, I actually tasked one of the research assistants, go tell me how many hundreds of thousands of people become unemployed from 3.7 to 4.1 unemployment so that we can tell them that their unemployment is a success, a policy success. <laughs> I'd like that. Very similar to when uh, Chair Powell said um, back when, uh, who isn't a fan of Volcker? Was, well, I can think of a couple of people. <laughs> Francis, um... I like the comment, especially about the three-month tenure. Uh, I always make a joke of that because for that to invert, you need to be so late in the hiking cycle where three-month rates have actually basically peaked because tenure is inverted against the Fed funds rate. I mean, three-month rate are a proxy for a front-end uh, Fed funds rate. So that's very, very late in the cycle. It's not a forward-looking indicator. It's not a coincidence. It's a lagging indicator probably of how late we are in the hiking cycle. But uh, the, the last question as we, here on the macro trading floor, we... Uh, try to convey an actionable investment ideas. You've talked about flatness in the US, two year versus 10 year, five year versus 30 year. And that's very actionable for, for a macro investor that is listening to us. But I know that on a broader ASTA location, you also have a wiser, immediately more applicable hint you'd like to share with investors over a more long-term basis, let's say. I have two, but I don't know which one you're referring to. So I'll, I'll give you both. Go I don't know both. if that's yeah. frowned upon here. No, it's okay. Go with uh, it. I'll tell you what I'm advocating right now. And uh, I've never in my career advocated this. This is not standard for me. And it's actually um, cash and USDs. Um, hmm. And the reason for that is because we're in what I might call a discovery mode with this Fed reaction function. I'm really talking about this week specifically. I mean, you guys picked a really hard week for me to come on to this macro trading floor <laughs> podcast. We're reevaluating forecasts. We, I have to adjust. Some people nailed this. Kudos to them. I have to adjust my thinking, how many Fed hikes are going into 2022. And I'm still concerned about um, – some sort of policy communication unwind from what we've seen in the past 24 hours. We have seen that before if the Fed isn't happy with that. So uh, while often I say to myself, we don't get paid to go neutral or sit in cash, there are moments when actually that's exactly what I get paid to do, which is to uh, reevaluate the situation and not take big bets when we're in such extreme moments of uncertainty about what's ahead. And uncertainty is different than inflection points. And inflection points, you go big or you go home. But this is a, a very, very heightened two-week period of uncertainty, especially because uh, I am a regime gal. I run um, models that tell me which macro regime we're in. We use a quadrant system very similar to many of your other guests. I don't conduct forecasts based on potential leaks to media in blackout periods. So uh, I think there are there is time to be very prudent. Now, at the same time, if you're a much longer term investor, there is an asset class that I like in this environment based on the strategic strategic views, and it's actually alternative. So hard assets and real assets. I like these because they're structurally underowned in general. Uh, when you look at the new inflation, inflation that creates a wedge between uh, Federal Reserve reaction functions and where inflation is going to be. It provides better inflation protection over that period. So uh, if you give me a dollar and you say you have to invest that, that's what I'm going to do with the longer term portfolios. But um, many of us in the asset allocation business are in the business of capital preservation and downside protection. And there are some times when um, 
assessing is is the right call. If you have me on a week from now, I probably will no longer, um, not that you should, uh, but uh, if I'm being very honest with both of you, that's where my thinking is right now. A final question from my side that relates to the dollar cash position. Um, we haven't talked about QT yet. We somehow managed to <laughs> to forget mentioning that. Uh, it actually started in real life yesterday with the first uh, repayments of of bonds uh, maturing on the Fed balance sheet. What do you make of the QT process? Is, is that something emphasizing this dollar cash position? Yeah, that certainly helps there. Um, I'd love to be able to call a turn in US dollar, just like I'd love to be able to call hmm. adding to bonds. We're just not there yet with this level of uncertainty, with liquidity still contracting very aggressively in this cycle, with just about everybody revising forecasts downward for 2023. Uh, I suspect sometime in the six months, it will make a lot of sense to be adding to bonds to be shorting USD, but it just feels too early for me. And I would rather miss the first 3% of that move uh, than risk the downside at this point. Frances, what could go wrong with the flattener trades you have discussed before? Mm-hmm. Uh, we could get a, a big policy turn from the central banks. Um, more news about this. Oh, you know, 75 basis points is not going to be common at all. Uh, we could see some reaction to initial claims starting to rise. So any, anything that sort of reintroduces this concept of the Fed put or bad news is good news uh, would certainly be a com- big component of that. Of course, any resolution on geopolitical developments would um, sort of revise up or revise down the inflation forecast pretty significantly. That would be uh, a big one. Uh, if for some reason we saw net global liquidity reaccelerate, that would be um, a significant one or any new commodity supply that comes online. Effectively, yeah. you need some sort of channel for um, headline inflation outlook to materially change, or you need uh, backtracking on the Fed's decision-making function. But given what we saw this week, those seem like low odds to me, unfortunately. Francis, it has been a great pleasure to host you at the macro trading floor. Ultimately, if our audience wants to follow you somewhere on the internet, where can they find more about you? (laughs) Uh, I do. I do have Twitter at Francis Donald, um, but my gosh, people are mean on Twitter lately. So yes, I, I don't. Um, I don't post everything, and I don't post fulsome views on Twitter. We should remember that it's hard to speak to risk management and balanced views and how you're approaching trades in 280 characters. Uh, but I do write when I have something to say. I do write on the Manulife Investment Management website in more full form, and try to speak to risks to the views and, and more balanced perspectives. So you can go there and check out some of their called viewpoints. Uh, and, and if I have nothing there, it's because I, I don't have anything powerful to say. And if it comes up, it means I really feel like it's something valuable that needs to be said. Francis, thanks for being a guest here. Really appreciate your very honest take and your very transparent uh, assessment as well. And it's been a pleasure to have you here. We hope to be able to host you again in the future. Oh, it was very kind of you to invite me. Thank you very much. So guys, this was quite an interesting interview, I think, from Frances Donald. She's very vocal, very fun, and has a very clear macro view that brings her to um, come up with the actionable investment idea for this episode of the Macro Trading Floor. It's June 16th, 2022, and Frances Donald wants to flatten the US yield curve between five years and 30 years. That's her most actionable 
tactical trade on the book and also for a long-term investor she would advise instead to basically have dollar cash and we are now going to discuss with Andreas how to implement those trades whether we like them or not and if there are any proxy ways to do that in a more friendly way let's say especially for non um, leverage margin investors listening to us so let's start from how do we implement a five-year against 30-year trades Andreas what does it mean we have proxies to do that well, it essentially means that you have a bet on two different points on the yield curve. Uh, so in relative terms, you're long the 30-year point versus, versus being short the five-year point. Um, it's not that easy implementable via ETFs, but there are ways of doing it. Um, for example, you could be long various uh, ETFs with a direct link to the long end of the uh, US Treasury curve. Uh, but that only gives you like half of the exposure because you also want to have a short exposure in the um, five-year point, uh, in this case, on the yield curve. One way of doing it is via futures, um, but it's not necessarily that easily implementable. Um, otherwise, there are maybe other proxy options to be uh, to be um, exploited here. Um, one way of, of doing it would be via a position in FX space. Uh, but otherwise, I think the easiest way of implementing this is via a long position in the far end of the yield curve via an ETF and a short position um, via futures in the five-year point. Yeah. One thing I'd like to say is that these trades are normally duration-weighted which means that what you only care about in the trade is that the, the number of basis point in the yield curve slope between five year and 30 year becomes smaller. And how do you achieve that is by matching the duration of the 30 year position against the duration of the five year position, which roughly means that the, third, the five year position should be roughly five to six times as big in notional terms as the 30 year position because third year is much more duration intensive than a five year is. And if you don't match the duration between the five year and the third year, you're going to end up with another trade and it's uh, too complicated, but those are duration matched trades. So uh, via futures, you can easily achieve that uh, via options or outright long and short. You need to be careful about your notionals, but for mm. people that want to implement this in a more easy way, I think we have to talk about proxies, Andreas. Yeah. First of all, let's comment on whether we like the trade idea or not. Do we like Francis Donald macro story? Do we like her trade idea here? I am in camp Francis Donald, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense uh, to, to keep flattening the yield curve after the Fed meeting this week. And the reason why I say so is that um, when we still see a risk of high uh, headline inflation prints over summer, there is still a clear risk of what you call a convex reaction function to such uh, inflation numbers. Uh, and by that, I basically mean that when inflation continues to surprise, surprise to the upside, uh, it also raises the risk that the Federal Reserve will have to act in a more forceful way, very short term, to get in front of the curve. Uh, I think that was what they, they intended on doing yesterday. Um, they didn't succeed that well in doing it. Um, but by the end of the day, if inflation surprises to the upside once again, I wouldn't even rule out that they could consider a 75 or a 100 uh, basis points hike at the next meeting to really get in front of it, if it still escalates, right? Uh, and in such a scenario, I think the best way to reflect the risk reward is basically via a curve flattener position because it 
is not a scenario in which the Fed wants to hike interest rates into like 2024 or 25. This is a very short-term reaction function designed to get ahead of the inflation curve. And when that's the case, we typically see higher short-term interest rates compared to the far end of the uh, yield curve. Uh, so I perfectly buy the risk-reward of this trade, uh, and I think it makes a ton of sense after listening to to Powell yesterday. What do you make of it? After cutting the BTP boon trade from the book, I basically have one trade, which is to be lo- short US stuff, equities and credits. That's what I have on the book. So I'm looking for other trades to add, uh, maybe diversify a bit. And uh, we talked about the Japanese yen, and I am looking as well into the US yield curve again, whether to buy outright long end bonds, but I'm not doing that yet, or at least to flatten the yield curve too. Because if I look at the possibilities ahead of us, Andreas, then I see three possibilities. One, inflation surprises on the upside, the Federal Reserve has to go ballistic, completely ballistic, and they have to basically put the terminal rate at 5% or wherever it's necessary above the inflation rate, projected inflation rate to literally bring real rates positive across the entire curve. That is basically what um, Volcker had to do back in the, um, in the 70s. And that will mean that, you know, the, the damage done to, to the private sector will be large, very, very large. And once the, the, that is priced in, then the back end of the curve has to reflect this damage, has to flatten out, that works. The second environment is inflation doesn't really surprise on the upside or on the downside, keeps, you know, staying relatively high, but the economy falls over. And if the economy falls over, then the Federal Reserve is tied, their hands are tied, they still need to follow their path, but the economy is, is walking, sleepwalking into recession. That will be reflected again in the back end of the yield curve. And so, and so the curve will flatten there too. That works. And then there is an environment where you're wrong. You're wrong if inflation slows down materially. This trade goes belly up if inflation slows down materially because then the Federal Reserve can just chill off. And if they, if they chill out, then, then obviously, yeah, they need, they need to do less at the front end. So the front end yields don't go up that much. They actually reduce a bit. And, 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 and then obviously the curve doesn't flatten that aggressively. But if I look at the balance of risks within these possibilities, then I am tempted to say that scenario one and two are to be considered the base case. And uh, so I think I might want to have a look at that too. So a 51% probability. (laughs) That's a phase (laughs) case, isn't it? (laughs) Ah, Well, uh, the other thing you need to know about this trade is that it carries against you. Yes. So as any late cycle trade, insurance policy trades you're looking at, they all carry negative because obviously when the house is on fire, the insurance policy is more expensive. So that's the other thing to factor in when you look at the trade because, you know, as a strategist, you can... Uh, in general, uh, talk about any trade because strategies don't face carry. But if you want to trade it on your book, then you face carry. So you need to uh, factor that in. But I sympathize with the trade too, Andreas. What about other trades, by the way? And what about the dollar cash story she put forward? Uh, I love that as well. Um, And I mean, it's partly reflected in the positioning uh, of mine already. Um, I've been long the UUP ETF, which is basically a broad-based long dollar ETF versus T10 currencies. Uh, but I'm actually contemplating um, uh, closing that position as a consequence of what we debated on Japan earlier in the podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm getting increasingly uh, scared, I'd almost say, uh, of a rally in the Japanese yen against the dollar also. Um, so I would rather reflect that view via a more concrete 
short position on the euro versus the dollar. Uh, I know Wisdom Tree um, has an ETF uh, designed to track euro versus dollar, not the dollar versus a broad basket of currencies. Uh, and then, as you are, I'm looking into the opportunity of going long the Japanese yen. Uh, and that's, again, a bad carry case. Sorry to say it, folks. <laughs> well, I don't know why, but anything that looks remotely good right now carries negative. Or actually, I do know why, because those are all some sort of insurance policies, trades at the end of the day, Andrea. So we can't avoid that, I guess. From my perspective, I'm looking at ways to add diversified trades or more risk on the book. And I discussed the Japanese yen. I'm, I'm investigating whether that makes sense. Curve flatteners as well. And gold is the other thing where, which I think has held up remarkably, way too remarkably good in this environment, given the sharp moves in real interest rates we have seen. And given Powell told us that he's going to want to see real rates positive across the board, across the curve in the US. And then he feels that inflation will come down as a result. But to put front-end real rates above zero in the US, then they need to go up by another 100 basis points. Mm on top of the fact that the terminal rate is already priced at 4%. Holy crap. So, you know, gold has been holding up extremely well. There is a war premium in there. There is a dollar weaponization premium uh, that we have seen in there. I understand that. Just trying to investigate whether buying downside gold in gold makes sense, whether to uh, accept the volatility embedded in it or not. And, you know, what's your take on, uh, on the good old gold? Well, um, we had Jesse Felder on the podcast last week suggesting to, to add uh, to a gold position in a more structural way. Um, and at that point, I was uh, flip-flopping a little bit around that trade because I wanted to see what Powell said before entering or adding to my position. I have a bit of gold in my structural position uh, as well. And... Right now, I'm actually tempted to to lean the same way as you. Um, so re either reducing uh, the the position that I have in my long term portfolio, or or even um, betting against gold in uh, in a tactical sense. Um, but I mean, it's not a strong conviction of mine. Still, I I, I struggle to explain why it's trading at at these high levels, given the. the uh, like a three standard deviation move that we've seen in, in real interest rates in the US since 1st of June. I mean, usually we, you would have seen the landslide in the gold price uh, yeah. because of that, but you, you haven't seen that yet. So I think that's a bit of a puzzle. Uh, it was also a bit of a puzzle why gold didn't trade higher during 2020 and 2020 and 21. So I, I personally decide to, to stay sidelined in that trade because I don't get the, uh, the price action in gold right now compared to fundamentals. But I want to mention one thing. Uh, and I um, I had that question from a couple of of, uh, uh, of Twitter users. Um, what does it take to actually go long long bonds now after this press conference from the Federal Reserve? And I I want to be extremely concrete today because I think there is only one signal missing, but it's a big one. I want to see two or three months of declining headline inflation in a row. That's it. I am going to say that uh, you're right. If we see, though, two or three months of declining inflation together with bonds, you'll see at the beginning, at least, a, re a big relief rally in risk assets too, especially the thing that has been hit the most, like, you know, NASDAQ, ARK, all of that will reprise up as a function of bond yields going down. But yes, Andres, I do agree with you. The growth rollover is now so evident in any forward-looking indicator you look at that, 
and the Fed is becoming so aggressive to make sure they compound this effect to a certain mm. extent that once you get the last box ticked, which is month-on-month -month inflation slowing down in a meaningful way and the composition of this inflation being a friendly slowdown to, oh man, it's time to buy some bonds mm. then. And uh, again, again, we shouldn't be married to a narrative. Nobody no, should. No, sure. So it's been uh, like, uh, you know, like sirens, they are, they're calling me to buy this bond since the beginning of the year. And I've resisted so far very bravely. And I don't want to be caught in there yet, uh, but let's, let's watch the trade. Let's watch the space. Um, but I actually, I actually think that Francis is right. In a year from now, the Fed will be cutting interest rates, not hiking. I think so. This is quite a bold call, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Uh, but as you well know, at the macro trading floor, you either have a trade or you go home. So Mr. Steno, next time we do a one-on-one -on -one trade, we'll have to come up with a trade idea. If he wants to back up his, his calls that the Federal Reserve will cut, he can buy, he can buy call spreads on Euro dollars next year. He can buy calls as well outright. He can do all of that. If he wants to, we're going to hold him accountable. Definitely. I think this was all for this week. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to host Francis Donnell at the uh, macro trading floor. Uh, and uh, we still want to thank you for the great support that we receive every week. Remember to rate our podcast on podcast apps. It helps us grow. Uh, and then we promise you to be back with the most actionable macro content out there again next week. See you every Sunday on your podcast app. Ciao, guys. See you every Sunday. 